Hi, I'm Jonah. And I'm Hull. And this is Turtles All the Way Down, the podcast of ANSO 102 at Knox College. Today we're going to be spinning some webs of significance that we're going to get ourselves entrapped into. And we are going to be engaging in some thick description with three C's because we are talking Clifford Gertz. Oh, yes, we are. But wait, hold on a minute. Who is Clifford Gertz? Well, Clifford Gertz is probably the most famous anthropologist to non-anthropologists. When I was in grad school, I took a history class. And at some point, the history professor turned to me in the room and he goes, and of course, all of you anthropologists believe in Clifford Gertz. And I had to just sit there and be like, okay. Yeah, I think that first time I heard Gertz's name was not in an anthropology class. It was actually in like a humanities philosophy class. And it was also one of those weird, oh, you're an anthropologist. You must read Gertz. Which isn't to say, of course, that Gertz isn't still influential within anthropology. But if somebody does recognize anthropology when you tell them you're taking this class, the first name that pops to their mind is likely to be Clifford Gertz. Right. So, okay, who was this dude that apparently everyone remembers when they think about anthropology? (laughs) So this dude is born in 1926 in California. He serves in the Navy in World War II. And he goes to college afterwards and does a PhD in interdisciplinary studies. And that's going to be super important for the way that he's trying to combine sociology with anthropology, with some stuff from literature in his work. When he's in his grad school, he's doing his PhD research in Java. Later on, as a professor, he starts to research in Morocco as well. He gets his professor job at the University of Chicago, where both of us did our grad school work. And I don't know how true this story is, but the story I always heard was that he arrived at Chicago and all the other professors were like, this guy is really, really brilliant but I just don't think he's gonna last here. He doesn't really like getting into fights with other professors. He really hates teaching students, Um, but he's brilliant, so we're gonna try him out and give him a job. And it turns out that they were right, and he doesn't last very long there. Um, But that's okay, right? Like, he finds another place. He lands in an okay institution. Yeah, he lands in one of the most prestigious research institutions, the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, where he really doesn't have to teach anymore. So he gets to just sit around and do his research and do his writing the rest of his life. And it's while there that he wrote the book that we're reading today, The Interpretation of Cultures. So this is the first chapter from this book that's trying to describe what anthropology is. Yep. And not just what anthropology is, but also to define culture, right? Because this term culture, it's been floating around other disciplines and people are citing it like this is culture, that's culture. And Geertz wants to say, hold up, let's actually define our terms. Let's understand what we mean when we talk about culture. So that's part of the context of where this book is born, right? Right. And so when I have a um, book like this with lots and lots of things going on in it, Lots of time, because I'm an ethnographer, what I want to do is a reading strategy that I call reading from the example. So in high school, oftentimes, when we're taught to read a book, we're taught, you know, just get rid of all the details. Just find the main idea of the text. And that's not a bad reading strategy in general, but it's not the only way to read a text. As an ethnographer, I love details. I crave the details. And in fact, I don't even think that I can understand what an author is saying if I can't use that author to explain an example. So help me through this. Talk to me about the big example that Gertz uses to organize this entire chapter. Well, that's great. Okay, so when I look at this chapter, 
everything actually really coalesces in this one story that he tells us pretty early on. It's like page seven and eight. And the story is a uh, retelling of a story he hears when he's in Morocco doing field work. And it involves three actors. The first is a Jewish merchant whose name is Cohen. The second is a French colonial officer. And the third, broadly grouped, is um, Berber tribes that are in neighboring villages to where Cohen lives. So Berber is the local indigenous group? Correct. And in fact, for our purposes, maybe we call them Almazigh tribes. It's a little bit more correct, but it's 1960s when Geertz is doing his work. So we're in, his, in this text, they're, they're described as Berbers. Yes. So what do they do? All right. So the story is a little complicated, but let's try to put all the pieces together. Cohen is a merchant and he's uh, visiting with two friends and he notices that there's a knock at the door late at night goes to the door, opens it, and it looks like it's a woman asking to be let in, but in fact, it's robbers. And the robbers are there to steal a bunch of stuff from Cohen and his friends, but they also end up murdering Cohen's two friends. So Cohen escapes just barely with his life. And the first thing he does, he immediately goes to the French colonial officer and he's like, oh my God, my two friends were killed. All my stuff was stolen and I want retribution. I want restitution for this thing, this terrible thing that's just happened to me. And when Cohen says, I want restitution, he's talking about a system of law that uh, Geertz says is the Merzak system, which basically gives you as the person who's been violated the right to turn to the tribe whose members came for you, took your stuff, killed you your friends, etc., gives you the right to claim damages from them. And, you know, he's expecting the French colonial officer to say, okay, sure, let's go to this tribe, get them to agree, yada, yada, and, and you'll get some kind of restitution. And the colonial officer is like, I don't want to deal with this. This isn't really my problem. I guess, you know, if you want to like take care of this yourself, we won't stop you, but we won't help you. So Cohen shrugs his shoulder and says, fine, I'm going to deal with this myself. So he gets a couple of friends of his, and he's not really supposed to have guns, but he does because why not? <laughs> and he just kind of walks off into the middle of the desert to this kind of uncharted area where these indigenous groups are hanging out. He's crossing the desert, and the indigenous group sees this like armed raiding party coming for them, and they're like, hey, this seems like a really good time to negotiate. Okay, wait, I want to pause you there, because that's actually not exactly what they say. At first they say, oh, it's, it's a war party, let's get our war on. But then they pause, they look at who's coming in this raiding party, and they see it's Cohen. And they're like, oh no, no, this isn't actually a war party. This is, this is indemnity. This is a group who we have wronged, who is coming for restitution. In other words, the, the Berber tribe realizes that there is a invocation of a claim that's being made within like a system of rules that they recognize. And they're like, okay, yeah, so we did some wrong. Let's sit down and negotiate what is the correct repayment 
for our wrongs to be resolved with your with your merchant and with your other tribe. And then there's a kind of long negotiation and it ends with Cohen getting to pick 500 of the best sheep. It's a lot of sheep. It's a lot of sheep. Uh, in fact, the uh, French colonial officers reported to say that they could hear the sheeps coming back to town like from a mile away, right? Because the sheep were so loud, they were bleeping. Um, and yeah, Cohen gets 500 sheep. So everything's fine, right? So then he comes back into the town and I guess there's a noise violation for too many sheep or something like that because the French officer is not happy with this and throws Cohen in jail. Wait, what? <laughs> Everything was supposed to work great. But I've read my Durkheim, so I know how this story goes, right? There was clearly a violation of the law. That means that law is a symbol of the moral order. The collective consciousness was offended when these um, Berber tribes raided Cohen's shop and killed two people. There was a conflict in which the collective conscious decided on the proper restitution for this crime. And so society gets to continue hunky-dory, right? This is what Durkheim has primed me to analyze. Um, I have finally been able to use my Durkheimian moral social analysis of law. Woohoo, go me! Oh, no, no, no. That is not what Geertz is going to tell you. In fact, Geertz is gearing up to telling you that everything you would assume from Durkheim is the opposite of what's actually going on in this story. What? So yeah. What does Durkheim miss in this story? Okay, so let's start with the first assumption that you have a series of rules and that those rules tell you something about the social morals of the times and that the way people behave is basically a reflection of these social norms, right? Well, if you look at the story, the norms and the rules as they're written down, they do not determine conduct. So even in the story that we are told from Geertz's perspective, a whole bunch of different conduct behavior is represented and it could have all gone very differently. So like the raiding party, for instance, um, that is interpreted by the outside Amazigh tribe as being um, a group that's worthy of negotiations, that did not need to go that way. They could easily have treated them as a war party and engaged with them in battle. The fact that it doesn't end up in a battle which is what the French colonial officer clearly thought was going to happen. That's just contingency. That's not norms or rules. That's history. <laughs> so for Durkheim, society follows a set of rules. If there's a crime, you apply the rules and the rules lead to a certain outcome. But you're saying that Goethe is pointing out that just because it happened this way, doesn't mean it had to have happened this way. Right, and not just that, but also the very notion that rules equals conduct is thrown out the window when you think about the fact that there's actually multiple systems of rules here, right? There's French colonial law, there's indigenous law, there is the intertribal network known as the Merzak system, and you could have seen people applying any one of those systems if it was convenient for them. And the fact that they go with one and not the other at a particular moment, that's not about social norms, that's about humans making meaning out of confusion. So yeah, I liked on page 18 when he says that this is a rigmarole conducted in multiple tongues. And I just like the word rigmarole <laughs> because it kind of captures the messiness of all of this, right? Maybe when um, Cohen went out to get those sheep, they didn't recognize him and they did think it was a war party instead. Or maybe when he comes back, the French official was like, man, I'm just tired today. I am not throwing this Cohen guy in jail. I'm just gonna let it slip this one time and go have some wine or whatever French colonial officials do. 
and that's just fine, right? So it could have resolved in all sorts of other ways, but instead we've got this rigmarole of different interpretations made by people who are coming from different cultural positions who all interact with each other. Right, and so the clash from Garrett's perspective between these different actors, it's about a clash of interpretive frames. Like they're all, as you said, right? They all have their own interpretive frame. And when those frames don't line up, you get a clash of meaning and interpretation. So if I'm Durkheim and I'm doing ethnography, what I'm doing is observing social behavior in order to get to a series of rules that every individual knows, even if they know them unconsciously, they know them subconsciously, it's imprinted onto their personalities. What about if I'm Gertz? What do I do as an ethnographer? That's a really good question. Well, I think the first thing you want to say for your Gertz is, okay, people have these interpretive frames that they use to make meaning out of their life. So we've got to understand how they live and how they make meaning, right? We got to actually go to the places that people live and see the way that they make their own uh, experiences and their own relationships meaningful and intelligible to themselves and to others. And this is what uh, Gertz is going to call thick description. Yes, I love that term thick description. It captures so much of what anthropology tries to do in the field. But like, let's actually give some examples of what thick description looks like. All right, so let's start with the example that Gertz uses in his text, and then maybe we can think of a couple examples on our own. Right, so the example that Gertz gives, and Gallman quotes this example, this very famous example in anthropology, is the difference between a wink and a twitch. Yes. Right? So if I'm sitting here and I say, hey, Michal, you just rapidly closed and opened your left eye. That's thin description. It's accurate, but it doesn't tell you what that rapid eye movement means for me or for you, what you were trying to communicate. Right. And if you don't know me and you don't know anything about the way that I interact, maybe you really don't know. Did my eye twitch or was I kind of winking at you as a joke or to tell you to move on to a different topic? You don't know, right? But that would make you a bad ethnographer. If you're a good ethnographer and you know me and you know the context, you should be able to tell whether my eye's twitching because I've got some dust in my eyes or whether I'm winking at you and sending a message. And not only that, but also what the message that you're sending at me, right? right? Maybe you're winking at me because you're flirting with me. Maybe you're winking at me because I just did something stupid and you want to send me a, hey, don't do that kind of message. Maybe you're winking at me because you want to call my attention to something crazy that somebody else in the class or that the professor is doing that the two of us know because we know each other, we have background together, we have context. So a wink isn't always a wink, right? A wink always has interpretation, it always has context, it always has meaning, and all this fun stuff that you need to actually understand what messages were trying to be conveyed through a rapid eye movement of opening and closing one eye is what you need in order to understand what happened in that cultural moment. That's the thick description. That's the beauty of ethnography for Geertz, right? Is my wink a conspiracy with you? Or am I trying to get your attention? Well, the art of ethnography is getting enough context to understand what people mean when they do or say things. So here's one of my favorite examples that helps me to understand how thick description is different from Durkheim's focus on trying to get at the social. Oh, tell us. Um, so I have a friend who spent some time in Tanzania. And the way that you hail a cab in Tanzania is to pucker your lips out and go, it looks like you're kissing at people, right? And that's apparently just how you hail a cab, how you point at things. It definitely looks like an air kiss. I've seen this friend try to like show us how she would hail a cab. And yeah, it looks like you're air kissing. And 
I spent some time in Spain, and in Spain, you like raise your arm out parallel to the ground, about waist height, with your hand pointed down, and you like wave towards yourself, almost like you're shoveling the air towards yourself, and that's how you hail a cab in Spain. And of course, you know, here in New York City or Chicago or whatever, you raise your arm sort of vertically upwards and you single and you signal to the cabbie with your fingers, right? Yeah, if you're in New York, you make sure to roll out practically in the middle of the street and yo, hey, taxi! Okay, so leaving aside that last thing, the point is all of these are symbols, right? They were used to signal what we are trying to achieve to other people. Okay, but if I'm Durkheim, these are all the same, right? If I'm Durkheim, these are all fulfilling the same social function which is to hail a cat. I don't right. really care whether I'm kissing or whether my arm is parallel to the ground or whether it's raised upward at a 45 degree angle, if I'm standing in the middle of the street or the side of the street or a corner or a designated taxi yeah. spot. This is a social function, right? Remember the biological analogy here, right? Maybe I'm getting oxygen into my blood via lungs or maybe I'm getting oxygen into my blood via gills. The function is what matters. How does this get oxygen into the blood? How do you get a cab? So kissing and waving and yelling, hey, taxi, is all the same because it fulfills the same social function. Right, Gert? Oh, well, well, that is right for Durkheim. That's not right for Gertz. So let me tell you, for Gertz, it matters. These different symbols that these different societies or places are using are what all of culture is ultimately about. It's about we deploy symbols like raising our hands or pecking our hands. And other people have, in our communities, have a shared uh, sense of what those symbols mean, right? So if I go from Tanzania to New York and I pucker my lips, people might think I'm harassing them. But that's because I don't share the correct so, uh, symbolic code, right? I don't know how to hail the cab cabbie in the, using the right symbols, the right cultural code. Okay, so we've got to slow down and do just a little bit of vocab here, right? <laughs> okay, yes. So first things first, when we talked about Durkheim, we talked about the social, we talked about society. The lips or the arms or the yelling is a social logic. All of a sudden, when we're talking about girths, we're talking about a cultural logic, right. right? So if we want to combine them, we might say that these fulfill the same social function. But they have different meanings. Cultural meanings, right? That culturally, sure. they're very All different. All meaning is cultural. <laughs> and right. you said just now that they're cultural because there's a different symbolic logic. So we've got to figure out what a symbol is and what semiotics, the play of symbol, the communication right. of symbols is all about here. Yeah, this word semiotics uh, trips a lot of people up, I think, at first. And, and Geert sort of throws it out in the beginning, right? He says, oh, culture is semiotic. And we're like, wait, pause, what's semiotic? So, okay, what's semiotic, Jonah? All right, so I would define semiotic as a play of symbols, as being about communication, right? That people use these symbols in order to convey meaning within a given cultural system. Can so it be gotta, any symbols or are they symbols that I randomly make up or what do these symbols even come from? So this is what the key to the difference between a symbol and a interpretation or a meaning might be, right? A symbol is going to be something that's shared. It's going to be something that Gert says is public. And the way I know it's public is that any member of the culture can see it just walking around in the street and they can recognize what it is. They know what it means intuitively because they're part of the same symbolic system. So if I'm walking down um, the quads on Knox campus and I see a prairie fox, I know what that prairie fox means. That prairie fox means, oh my God, this is Knox College. Now, if you don't know Knox College, you're gonna be like, why is there a giant prairie fox jumping around and stuff here? That's weird. I don't understand what that means because I'm not a part of this culture. 
But part of being a part of Knox culture is that you know what the prairie fox means. Right. So, okay, Blaze the Fox. Here's my question about Blaze the Fox. Is he a fox or is he a prairie dog? I've never gotten this right. For the purpose of our podcast, let's pretend he's a fox because that's what I think See, he is. See, this is the difference between professor culture and student culture because everybody listening to this right now well, is no. now making fun of us okay. for being so dumb to not know whether Blaze is a fox or a prairie dog. You guys can correct us on this, but I'm going to go ahead and call Blaze the Fox. Okay. Okay, so here's my question about Blaze the Fox. Could Knox have chosen a different mascot? Does it mean, does symbols have to have some kind of intrinsic link to the people who use them? Or can they use any symbol? No, this is really key, right? A symbol is an arbitrary relationship of meaning. So Blaze the Fox, if you're Durkheim, fulfills the exact same function as the Monmouth Hawk or as the Galeberg Silver Streak, the lightning bolt that's the symbol right. of the high school, right? These are all mascots. These are all representations of the school. These are all places where we channel school spirit, where right. we have good feelings about what it means to be um, a member of that culture. But of course, you know, if things had worked out differently, maybe we would be the Knox College Hawks and they would be the Monmouth um, um, Prairie Fire, right? But that's just not how it worked out. It's arbitrary, but its arbitrariness is precisely what makes it meaningful. We are the Prairie Fire. We are not the Hawks, right? And that makes sense to each one of us. That's meaningful to each one of us. Each one of us cares about that. If, you know, when we get back to campus after this whole COVID-19 nightmare passes and we don't see Blaze the Fox on campus, we see a hawk on campus, we're going to be like, okay, what's going on? This isn't Knox College anymore. That's right. You, you've just messed with our culture. Okay, so let me ask you one more question about what this whole semiotic symbol thing is. If I make up my own symbol and I declare just to myself that this new symbol, let's just say it's like a... I don't know, uh, a picture of a cat, because I like cats, right? So what if I say the cat's not going to be the symbol of Knox? Does that work? Can that be a symbol? Well, no, because symbols are never about your individual meaning, right? The symbol of the prairie fox was here before we came along. Right. It's going to be here after we leave. Um, and the symbol of the prairie fox outlasts all of us, right? So it's not, you know, I've arbitrarily decided that I'm going to have a new symbol for Knox. Um, it's that, you know, we, the culture, has decided that in our context, this symbol means that thing, right? And we can think about this in terms of a traffic light, right? Why does red mean um, stop? Is there any intrinsic connection between the color red and stopping? No, absolutely not. But we all know as part of our culture, when you see a red light, you stop. So you I watch. love that example because it really highlights the two things that are essential for Geertz's understanding of culture, right? So it has to be public, right? Everybody knows what the green and the red light means. And it has to, it can be totally arbitrary. Like there's no reason we chose green and red other than we did. But once we chose that system, everyone sort of understands and can make sense of it. So when we encounter green or red lights anywhere in the world, we know what that means. We know how to interpret it. And that's critical, right? That's what is at the heart of this whole thick description uh, account of anthropology and fieldwork. And we should note here as well that Goethe is not a great historian here, right? We know that Knox College was not always the prairie fire, that we used to have a much more problematic kind of racist name. And, you know, Goethe is never going to be able to tell you why it is at a certain point in time the mascot changes from one thing to another. 
That's not what Goethe is trying to do. He's trying to explain a moment in time, a culture as it exists in a particular time and space. He's not really trying to explain how cultures change over time. Right. That's just not his job, or the way he sees it anyways. So if that's not what he wants anthropologists to be doing, what does an anthropologist do if you're Gertz? Well, that's a great question. I mean, okay, so like the readings that we saw last week from Galman, he's going to agree the fieldwork is a really big component of the anthropologist's job, right? So like Galman, he still thinks that anthropologists have a real responsibility to go to a local setting to do long-term observation, to take notes and do interviews. But critically, he says these are important techniques, but they do not in themselves define what field work is. Okay, so going and living in a place is a technique, but it's not what an ethnographer does. So what is it that the ethnographer does? Okay, so at the end of the day, what an ethnographer does for Geertz is give us the content, give us the interpretive frame to understand how it is that people made sense of the world around them in the places and the times that they were being observed. So how they make sense of uh, their relationships with others, how they make sense of their place in the community, how they make sense of the world in relationship to where they're situated. How do they make sense of all of this? So Gertz did go to Morocco. He yes. did live with people. He did participate in observation. The story that we got at the beginning comes from an interview that he does. So he does ethnographic interviewing. He collects the kinds of artifacts that we saw in Shane Malone, ethnographer. Absolutely. But that's not what ethnography is. Ethnography is explaining the points of view of Cohen, of the Berber raiders, of the French colonial officials, so that me and you sitting here can understand what this story is all about, even though we're not Moroccan, we're not French colonial officials, exactly. but we can still understand what happened there because Gertz is describing it to us in that thick way. Yeah, and so Gertz actually has this metaphor that I like, and I think it's helpful, and he, the metaphor he uses for this is that culture is like a text, and that field work is therefore the, like the act of reading, right? A critically reading a text in a foreign language. And I think that there's something actually quite nice about this example. And the way that I think about it is, okay, if you are a student who wants to do field work in the Middle East and you get a dictionary and you'll look up the word, inshallah, you will find that word in the dictionary. It's going to be translated literally as God willing, right? Inshallah, God willing. The problem with that definition is that inshallah is actually one of these words that gets used contextually in a thousand different ways. So just like the wink can be a conspiracy, it can be flirting, it can be a joke, it can be a parody, inshallah can be all those things too. Like, here's an example. Let's say I ran into you in the street, Jonah, and I say, wow, it's so great to see you. Inshallah, I'll see you again. Maybe what I meant there is I really hope I'll see you again, but equally, I may actually be saying, wow, I hope we don't have to see each other again. And the only way to know which of those two meanings I'm actually imparting is through thick description to know me and the cultural context in which I'm invoking that phrase. Well, I hope it's the first one. But um, <laughs> what I really like about this example is it captures the mundaneness. It captures the normalness that Gertz is offer. So when you're talking about inshallah, I'm thinking about, you know, words that I use in everyday language that I never pay attention to. So maybe I'm like, yeah, cool, 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 right? And I just say that as kind of a gut reaction. And cool can mean, yeah, I genuinely find that cool. Or cool can mean, okay, we've talked enough about inshallah, can we move on to the next example? <laughs> right. Right? Um, 
And I don't think about it because that's just my culture. That's just something that's so natural to me that I'm using all the time without reflexively thinking about it. What Gertz says is that ethnography is about exposing people's normalness without reducing their particularity, right? That's what he says on page 14. Yeah. So I was thinking about this. And I was trying to think of an example of this, right? So let's say I'm like, hey, I went to um, this big open space in the Midwest. And there was a dude running around in a giant fox costume as a bunch of people lined up and they all shook each other's hands. And in the background, there was a giant fake wooden um, water pump that was going around there. And then the next day, there was an Abe Lincoln impersonator and he was playing baseball and people were ziplining. The, the first thing, if you told me this and I knew nothing about Knox College, I, I wonder if maybe you hit your head. <laughs> yeah, this is a crazy story. This is not a story that makes any sense. But once I explain to you what Knox College is, once I explain to you what Pump Handle is, once I explain to you what um, Flunk Day is, well, these examples aren't not weird anymore. It's still super weird to have Abe Lincoln running around playing baseball. I didn't eliminate the particularity of this culture. But I've explained it to you in a way that you can understand it even if you don't feel it. In other words, I've exposed your normalness without reducing your particularity. Right. So I'm not going to understand a world in which somebody robs me and my first instinct is to go gather my friends, march with guns into the desert and have a negotiation over how many sheep I'm supposed to take back in exchange for a murder. That is never going to be an intuitive thing that makes sense to me. I'm never going to have that gut reaction, to have that feeling that that is my life because it's not. But Gertz will be happy so long as you understand the context that made this a normal and intuitive reaction for the actors that he's describing in this story. But I think that we forgot one little thing in this story. Oh yeah? What did we forget? We forgot about colonialism. <gasps> dun, dun, dun! Okay, so now we gotta go back to this example that we started at the top. Because we're reading from the example, and as an ethnographer, I always want to understand the example. That's a super Gertzian desire. Okay, alright, so let's read from the example. The first thing Gertz tells us, and admittedly to his credit, he, he doesn't hide this fact, but he doesn't tell us what it means. The first thing he tells us is the timeline. When is the story told to him? It's told to him in the early 1960s. When, so what's going on in the 1960s? Well, wait, there's two timelines here, okay? When it's being told and when it happens. The story is supposed to have happened in the 1910s and it's told to him in the 1960s. Okay, so to answer your first question, What's going on in the 1960s? Oh, I don't know. The end of French colonial rule, right? This is the time period in which there is massive anti-colonial resistance, okay? Armed resistance to the colonial state. And French colonialism is literally, it's like it's dying days is when the story is being told. So the whole system that Gertz is trying to get us to understand is like falling apart. Completely, all around him, okay? It's like falling apart, collapsing. And the story is supposed to take place in the 1910s during the very beginning initiation of French colonial rule in North Africa. So bookended by colonialism, the story at its heart cannot be separated from the story of French colonialism. In fact, it makes no sense to even begin to discuss it without knowing this history, which is mysteriously missing from Goethe's account. I mean, okay, so that's fair enough, but I really want to push you on this because I want to know how fair of a criticism this is of Goethe. Like, Goethe admits right off the bat, he's like, I'm writing a 27-page essay, 
Three pages of it are going to be taken up by this thick description. And this thick description I'm going to provide a lot of context to, but of course there's more context that I could provide if I was to go into this farther, right? I really love that metaphor at the end of um, the chapter turtles. with the turtles, all turtles, turtles. <laughs> turtles this is turtles. like the most famous metaphor in anthropology. It's turtles all the way down, right? There's always more context. So Gertz described certain turtles. He didn't describe the colonialism turtle. Aren't what you're doing just adding more context, describing the colonialism turtle? It's a great question. And I have to say, I think the answer is a unequivocal no. So looking at colonialism isn't about adding another circle of meaning to the interpretation. It's about understanding that this story is not just reflecting colonial rule, but it's being told in order to make the listener account for the different power dynamics that define colonial resistance. This is a story about who has power, who doesn't. How power can be stripped from you and how power is recognized and how power is distributed under colonialism. That's not about meaning making, that's about accountability and that's about structures of resistance. And that's what the story is a at its heart, it's really about. So if what culture is all about is an exchange of arbitrary symbols, symbols that we never invented, but that define right. our lives, that define our actions, that define our interpretations of the world, then everything's hunky-dory, everything makes sense. Or if it doesn't, it's because there's a, quote, confusion of tongues, right? It's not because there's a power struggle. It's just about wrong interpretive frame. So in Geertz's world, if Cohen had just shifted his interpretive frame, things would have gone better for him. And I'm saying, no, it would not have gone better for him because the power dynamics were such where he was probably going to be screwed no matter what happened. And that's about power. So do we need Durkheim then to understand power? Because Durkheim's all about how these social norms end up punishing those who don't fit into the social norms. Unfortunately, Durkheim doesn't really give us a way out of this either, right? Durkheim isn't looking at different power relationships within a society. So Durkheim doesn't get us out of the power problem and neither does Geertz. So interesting. So we've got to keep reading and figure out what anthropologists have to say about power. Yeah, sorry guys. There is still more to do before we can get to some of these hard questions. Neither Durkheim nor Geertz solve the power problem for us. Yeah, so uh, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> you got to read more anthropology. We've got eight more weeks to go. Seven more weeks, right? Seven. One of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So we got um, two really, really good questions in at the end of this uh, podcast. But we've been going for a little while. And I think that would be much better if we had a lot more questions before we um, answered that. So when you are done listening, post your questions on Slack, email, Canvas, Moodle, whichever you prefer. We will gather all of your questions and we'll put out another podcast. Right, Jonah? Yeah, we'll put out another podcast probably over the weekend. Um, and just kind of go through your questions, answer them to the best of our ability, try to struggle through them, and um, and we'll see you on Monday. We'll see you on Monday. Yeah. All right. So stay healthy. Stay wash your hands. Exchange yeah. symbols. Exchange symbols, but in a socially distanced manner. Yes. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye.